Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? Marky Mark, man. How's it going? It's going good, man. I need this not so much to vent about reef-related topics. I just want to talk reef because uh, reality work has been a pain in the butt this week. So this is a nice little escape. <laughs> Welcome to another Zoom meeting, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll take this Zoom meeting over the ones. Yeah. Anyway. You know, I, uh, I, uh, we always like warm up a little bit before we press record. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's the reef therapy that happens there. And then we talk a little bit more when we quit recording. And um, I was just saying that, you know, sometimes I come across critical on equipment or you know, things that other people could, could do better um, or easier. And I just want everybody to know, man, like I was telling Mark just now, I am always on the verge of thinking like my tanks are crap because one or two corals or clam or fish is, you know, suffering this week or that week. And just now and then I'll have to turn off the flow to the SPS coral flat. And then the colors don't lie. <laughs> the colors just, you can't talk your way around it when it's full daylight and I've got 18 different shades of blue just you know burning my retinas without sunglasses and or you know orange glasses and definitely right now I'm I'm, I'm on an upswing with a lot of my corals because I'm finally finally got myself a bunch of the uh, Hanna high range nitrate checker reagents man I've had those checkers since like May <laughs> this is May I did one round of testing with the initial pouch but now I have a bunch and I can actually do the analysis to keep my nitrates at five not you know clear tiny bit pink kind of pink and then magenta you know that was that was what I was going with before and just now that I can really keep them at a good solid number that I trust mm, 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 mm. I'm happy Corals, corals are happy. I'm happy too. Even just from here, I just, I just see a rainbow of, of coral color. I got that high range test kit as well from, um, um, shoot, why am I drawing a blank? Uh, that one place? Anna, thank you. Uh, but uh, it's funny, it's just always test zero, which is very frustrating. Uh, I've tried to raise my nitrates, but that thing still thinks I'm at zero. Have you but tried dosing nitrates? I do, yeah. Um, and I've really up to my feeding a bit um mm -hmm. and it shows right like again the i'm a visual reefer i look at like what's going on in the tank and i'm definitely getting a lot more crap on the glass my refugium or calerpa scrubber is definitely having to be harvested a lot more um, right. and I, I don't have any signs of nitrate deficiencies i don't have any cyano or dinos knock on wood um but it's just interesting like i it's um the metrics are never visible for me, the data points. And and so do I dose more? I'm like, eh, no, you know, things are going all right. Um, I could be more um, regimented about dosing. It's kind of a lackadaisical mm -hmm. thing that I do. Almost like feeding the tank frozen foods. Like, oh, you get a little treat of nitrate today. <laughs> right now I'm doing it manually 
Um, but I'm watching how much I'm adding and how the corals respond. Like, our, for example, um, when I haven't dosed nitrates for a long time, I could dose 10 ppm's of nitrates and they would just evaporate in like 48 hours in my main 600 gallon coral system. Um, but then once I'm, I stay on top of it, it's more like 3 ppm, 2 ppm of nitrate per day for that one system, you know, and I find that heavy feeding of a coral food or fish food. Um, it's just, it's just, I don't know what it is. It's not enough nitrates. It's just enough ammonia for the, the, the corals to suck it up right away, but you'll see a little bit more of a bump on the phosphates. So if mm -hmm. I do like three days of heavy feeding with a lot of frozen food, the nitrate will go up a little bit, but then the phosphates will go up um, a lot more appreciably. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we can always chit chat for a long time, but I think we have an awesome topic that I've been, I've been wanting to talk about it for a really long time. And I feel like we could do two sessions of this, but I got a nice list to, to get us started. Did you get to put together a list on the, the today's topic? Yeah. I mean, uh, you gave me a bit of a hint of some of your ideas on this. So, and obviously I, a lot of them were like, oh yeah, I was thinking the same on those, but then it, what was cool is even the ones where it's like, oh, you beat me to it. I think they offered a jumping off point to kind of delve into that, uh, from a different angle as well. So I, yeah, I mean, you'll have those down, some, you'll have some input and some feedback and some side shoots and all right. So without beating around the bush, um, I, I feel like it's a lot more direct to make a, uh, create this session discussing all the things that make reef tanks harder rather than the list of things that makes reefing easier. And my overall feeling about the aquarium hobby, probably for about the last 10 years, is that it's never been easier to keep a saltwater or reef aquarium. But in, in, hand in hand with that is that it's never been harder to learn how to reef or how to keep a saltwater aquarium tank for a, a wide number of reasons. And, um, yeah, I think once we get to, through this list, you'll see that, you know, there's a lot of things out in, out in the wild of the reef aquarium world that just are not helping. They're just not helping our case for building reef tanks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thinking about it, reef bum actually did one on, um, why, why has reef keeping become harder? I don't know if you saw that one. And he had some interesting points. I think points. it is. Um, and it was less about us. Uh, I, I think the way we're, the the angle that we're approaching it is different than his. But he did have some interesting points of things that are, are getting more, are too efficient at times, right? Like we just talked about dosing nitrates, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in a way, just the constant iterative improvement of of the technologies that we use for reef keeping and the approach and methodology, and the methodology, and the bacterial dosing, all of that has definitely changed the landscape to the point that we have some serious power tools at our disposal. But it's also you you, you can wade into a dangerous territory where things get tricky. You know, so, mm -hmm. and I, I liked what he had to say about that. So I had, I just wanted to first off, give props to, uh, what he said about it, but, um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you lead in with this. And I also think it's a good perspective to talk about that ties into all of this discussion about reef affordability, like we talked about. And, um, 
you know, oh, things are getting too expensive. And it's again, a perception thing where it's like, well, we're getting in our own way too, right? We're making things more complicated than they need to be, which increases the cost, increases the hardships and, and, and yeah. It's, it multiplies it's, the odds that something will go wrong. Right. So it all ties in together, I think, in a, in a good way. Cool. Well, I want to, I want to give a couple, couple shout outs. Uh, one to Keith Berkelhammer of Reef Bum. Uh, what's up, Keith? He is doing some good work, man. He is doing some good work out there interviewing a, a real wide range of just a, casting a wide net across the reef aquarium hobby. And, uh, he's doing some good work. Uh, and he deserves some, some recognition. That's one, you know, I'm not like crazy excited about every single speaker, but I mean, a, a lot of, of his guests will have some awesome insight and points of view. So if you haven't caught a, is it a Thursday night, Thursday night, a reef bum, uh, live stream interview, uh, you know, go give it a shout. And he's got a lot of great episodes before. Very rarely do I plug other content creators because, you know, that's what I do. And we're focused on creating content, but Keith deserves a plug. And then finally, man, we have been firing on all cylinders here at Reef Builder Studio, just cranking out some fun videos. Um, I'm, I'm starting to get to <laughs> call Bob Ross in the way of just like talk about the reef tanks and, you know, chopping down, you know, corals, making them smaller, putting new corals in. Happy little um, corals. Happy little <laughs> corals. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, actually reefing, practicing reef, not like intangible stuff that you can't apply to your aquarium. You now, even stuff like, uh, keeping your sump clean, just that way you can have a better visual of what's going on in the sump. And man, there's nothing cooler than just having a beautiful reef tank with a well-organized sump underneath. Uh, today we did a long video that should be out right around when this session is out um, on the two different ends of calcium reactors. You know, I got the uh, Deltec Twin Tech uh, calcium reactor, super automatic. Then on the other end of the spectrum, I've got aqua vitro element calcium reactor that I'm using in a kind of an, an analog fashion. And they both, they both do the job, you know, they both dissolve media, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, little pro tips in there that I think, uh, will be incorporated into calcium reactor setups of the future. So. Uh, I know a lot of you guys have heard about reef therapy through reef builders, um, different, uh, social and content platforms. Um, but if you're not caught up on videos, I'd say, you know, maybe the last month we've, we've put out some really fun and very watchable content. The, the grafting one, um, you know, when something's so obvious and simple, but has never, it never crossed your mind. That happens a lot, right? Where you're mm, like, Oh Yeah. Sometimes okay. somebody presents a solution that's so simple that you're like, why the hell did I never consider that? And I, back in my SBS keeping days, so many times I'd have a staghorn that kind of just went errant, right? It's like you plant that singular frag and it grows vertical and then like at the top it starts branching out and it just yep. looks weird, right? And I yep. was always like, that annoys me. Um, and then to see you basically just, okay, hack out the middle part and then put the branchy stuff back on the base. I was like, dang, why did I never think about that in my SVS keeping, you know, moments? I was like, that's so obvious. <laughs> you know what's crazy is like I've done this so much in the coral flats because they're the coral flats are 10 inches deep with nine inches of water. So, you know, the stack horns will hit the top of the surface pretty quickly, especially now that I'm dosing nitrates and they're super heavy. Um, but uh I do. Yeah. I've done it all the time, but it took me a long time to be like, all right, I have the, I have the guts to do it on video now. And, you know, specific, I think maybe this, um, this grafting technique, first of all, I, I want to acknowledge that a lot of folks 
plenty of people have like broken off a, a small branch and just kind of glued it back where, where it went. So there's been a lot of um, just casual grafting. You know, there's a lot of yeah. people that want to, you know, uh, raise their hand in the comments like, hey, I've done that before. And yeah, okay, we've, we've all glued a tip back to where it, it goes. Um, and I currently have the uh, Australian uh, Dallas Staghorn Acro. Man, I swear, this thing's a huge encrusted base. And there's this one branch that's going like sideways, like I would say 10 degree angle above the horizontal and then the new tips from it are literally going downwards. <laughs> so I'm just like, no, what are, what you, are doing? you doing? So I'm going to cut the branch at a 45 and just rotate it 180 degrees and hopefully that'll get it back on the right track. It's funny because you know how Instagram or some of these platforms try to throw content that they think you like, right? Mm -hmm. So for some reason, it thinks I like bonsai trees now. So I get oh, all yes. of this suggestions for bon And I think bonsai trees are super cool and how they're trained. And so don't get me wrong. I just, I don't actively, I don't have any bonsai trees. So it's just funny that this algorithm said, hey, I bet Mark would like bonsais. And then mm -hmm. your video came up and I'm like, sort of like, training corals the way bonsai growers use wires and stuff you know like I, I just got me thinking about next level like what kind of creative things could you do to train a coral to grow a certain way and um, once anyway. you you know i don't i know this 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 whole conversation is going to talk about why we haven't got to that point because things haven't gotten like if you want to grow a bonsai the growing of the bonsai that part is easy Right, like the mastery comes in in pruning and shaping the trees and anticipating how it's going to grow over years and decades. You know, that's that's next level stuff. But the reef aquarium hobby hasn't become easy enough that we have more coral bonsai artists yet. You know, I think it's coming, and I'm, we're talking about shaping one coral, right? Not like putting tiny little pieces all together because that's sort of what everyone is doing. But uh, but yeah, the coral graphing thing is actually it's fun. It's fun, and I want to assure everybody that the um, the blue lightning stag. I'm renaming the Derrickson decision. It just that doesn't roll off the tongue. Uh, someone in Australia told me they also call it the blue lightning stag. Uh, that thing's looking amazing. It's got bright blue edge uh, along the living parts of the branch that were glued onto the skeleton. Oh man, it's gonna look so freaking cool when it's like got this, you know, let's say half inch, one inch encrusted bright blue growing edge that's going downwards of its own branch plus the tips at the top. Once they finally all grow together. It's not going to look as cool. And someone said also, uh, let's see, you know, it was um, it was a white skeleton. And so it had the uglies for, I don't know, two or three weeks where you had the succession of diatoms and then like light algaes. And now it just kind of has like that background color after all the herbivores have had a, had a turn on it. But yeah, it looks it looks really good. I You know, I need to go check on the, the stump because I cut those at 45 degree or like a wedge shape, trying to encourage more tips to come off both sides. So I need to go like observe and analyze that one a little bit more. Like, I, you know, I saw it was healing, but I, I haven't seen whether the tips are coming off both sides because it's a thick staghorn. So we'll see. Nice. Um, I would say that what's making reef keeping harder right now is misinformation, misinformation and misinformation. And when I say misinformation, it's like some of the stuff is like factually correct. It's factually true on paper and hypothetically. But then when you put it into practice, it just doesn't turn out that way. Like it's just not good information. It's not like what you really, really need to know. You know, if you start, if you're, if you're in the first six months or year of, of starting up a reef tank, 
you don't need to know that you know certain trace elements are going to you know boost the photosynthetic activity of those zooxanthellae pigments inside your fast growing aspen. Like you don't need that information. Just do a water change and just assume that it's covered, right? And so there's just and this you know this might go in like hand in hand with the lack of messaging as far as how to do reef tanks affordably and more easily. And using some of the mid-grade equipment and some of the trusted older equipment. You know, I feel like information is the entire thing. And, you know, I retired from the, the discussion forums of all formats a long time ago because it just got noisier and noisier and noisier. And instead of people stepping up when they had a really good answer, everyone wants to step up and raise their hand and says they have some kind of answer. And that has just, just diluted the most important facts and fundamentals of keeping a healthy reef aquarium. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to say grew up, but like my hobby progression grew up on the forums, right? I was a moderator on ReCentral and a staff member and all that. And that was my little world, right? For many mm -hmm. years. Um, I was right there work. with you, man. Yeah. Um, but I, I do, I'm, I'm with you on that where I, I do try to post and be helpful here and there if it's an interesting question, but it's sort of like everyone wants to hear themselves talk, but nobody's actually listening. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's it's just gotten to be very noisy. And so it's part of it is not even, I mean, I know you said misinformation and there's a lot we could dive into there in terms of making the hobby harder. But I also think it's noise. It's a noise yeah, factor. I mean, that's kind of right? what I mean too. It's just, you're telling me stuff that isn't false, that isn't incorrect, but it's not really getting at the root of the problem. You know, I swear to God, like somebody randomly just proposed 15 years ago that Springer's damselfish might eat flatworms. Someone just, just, just brain farted out into the ether that dragon face pipefish might eat Tagastes copepods, aka red bugs, on your Acropora. No one followed up with that information. They just kept repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And now, you can just overhear that conversation. Somebody says to the you know fish store employee, "Oh, I got flatworms," or like, "Oh, get a springerized damsel," or "Oh, I got red bugs on my acro." Oh, get a dragon face pipefish. Like that actually works, you know. So it's 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 parallel with you know the I don't know the vaccine stuff that's going on where everybody thinks they have an alternative fact about whatever. I'm not trying to get into that, but yeah, I swear somebody just just proposed these ideas. Maybe a Springer's would do that. Maybe a dragon face puffish. And the one I'm overhearing now is bumblebee snails. Do, do they actually eat vermitids? Was this somebody's idea? Maybe one vermit, one bumblebee snail actually ate one vermitid and in certain conditions, yes, it will do that. But are you sure it was a vermitid and not another kind of encrusting tube worm? You know, I don't know. I literally don't know if that's true or not, but the last six months, I've heard, overheard a lot of people asking for bumblebee snails at the stores. And I, I've, I've done some searches and I haven't seen like any conclusive evidence that, oh, these guys will go around and like, you know, heat seek, target and destroy your vermintid snails. Yeah, you know, it was funny. A commenter commented about us talking about Nastra stars being... Um Ooh, mostly starfish. Just, it's, it's it's catching on. I'm, I'm keeping it. I'm keep perpetuating the 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 naming. Um, 
but yeah, you know, and he he said, look, I you may, you probably never kept the kind that ate zoanthids, and um, and I you know my response back to the comment commenter was, I'm not challenging what you've observed because that's fair. You know, you may there are a crap ton of species in that genus, and there it could vary. It's probably um, irresponsible for me to say that they are all detritivores or eating algal mass we never you know one of them might be a predatory type of starfish but um i mean we see that even in like species that look identical identical but come from different geographic regions and have evolved to have different food sources right so uh, i'm not challenging that but i need i want to see more proof of that right and i went on a on a rabbit hunt to youtube and everywhere and I did find a video where somebody's like, look, look at these star asterinas, as they were called at that time, eating my zoanthids. And yes, the one of them just parks it on top of a zoanthid. And that zoanthid looks pissed off as hell, right? And then the starfish crawls away. And then, yes, that zoanthid continues on this time lapse to look very unhappy. What but if that was that starfish actually helped that zoanthid because it was suffering and it closed up and algae started covering it and then it ate the algae off the zoanthid and then when it left, now the zoanthid could open up again. Well, and again, I, I know this <laughs> hobby because I'm, I'm, I can't, you know, uh, I can't call myself a, I mean, like, a, what's the word I'm saying? I, I would be a hypocrite if I say we can't always rely on anecdotal because I, I, provide all kinds of anecdotal experience and be like hey this like i had dino issues i raised my temperature to 81 and left it there and my dinos went away that's an anecdotal comment that you'll hear from me all the time i'm not saying that scientifically factual that that's what made my dinos go away right so that that's all it's like well i believe that somebody witnessed something but i don't know you know like causation i would love to see video of correlation it. yeah and but correlation and is where, not causation that's that's part of the problem is that and I'm part of the problem because I share anecdotal things as very with high confidence factors all the time. But I think that only perpetuates some of this misinformation and noise too, right? Of oh, you know, this dragon face pipefish will help you with, you know, your acropora pests and stuff. It's like, is it true though? Is it really like an effective control or and and for sure yeah. this hobby was built on some degree of anecdote if enough people say hey i don't have a glass top on my tank or i don't have a lid on my tank and my fish keep jumping out you can guarantee that putting a cover on that tank is going to prevent the fish from jumping out i mean that's a really obtuse example but when you hear it enough times over a long period of time for sure you know you can develop a certain degree of confidence that those anecdotal observations were probably accurate you know but just like i mentioned with the nastro starfish could it be that his zoanthids were pissed off and algae was growing on it could it be one zoanthid that was particularly tasty could it be one nastro starfish that was actually a little bit large and had enough of a digestive system to get through the slime coat and decided mm, the zoanthid is tasty you know what if it was just like a leech and it actually ate off what whatever was pissing that that zoanthid and i'm not dismissing at all well, but hey maybe don't that have starfish to all be predators right maybe nasa mm -hmm. starfish are just a nuisance in zoanthid dominant systems because they irritate the crap out of your corals by crawling all over them right and that's mm -hmm. enough of a reason to say if i was really into zoanthids to say i'm getting rid of these things 
You know, they're pissing off my Zoanthids. They're closing up. That's fine. That's fine. They have, the, they have their choice to run their reef tank how they want. Um, all right. I think we're good on the observation. You want to hit the next one or you want me to take it? Yeah. Let's see. Um, some of these are building off of ones I know you've got queued up, so I'll skip those. Mm. Um, all right. Let me, let me just throw it out there. Chasing numbers. I don't trust anything. I have a, a, a gram scale that I use when I'm treating antibiotics or certain things of very low concentrations. I don't trust my gram scale. Actually, let me back it up. <laughs> when I'm doing water testing <laughs> and I have the, uh, uh, the pipetter, you know, I have graduated cylinders that have a mark on them, but I don't trust the cylinders. So I'll put it on a gram scale just to double check, make sure that 10 mLs actually weighs 10 grams. Right. But I don't check. I don't trust that gram scale. So I have another scale that's higher precision, but I don't trust that gram scale. So I have a set of weights <laughs> to, to calibrate and double check. Like, I don't care if it's telling me nine or 11, if my reading, you know, the 10 mLs is the same as, you know, the weight that's supposed to be 10 grams or whatever. Then if I have like four or five things that are coming together to support whatever I'm volume I'm trying to add for my magnesium or calcium or alkalinity test, then I start to develop a certain degree of confidence by constantly distrusting myself. And the, the journey I've been on here lately is like, I literally have about 10 different pH probes and like three different pH, four different pH meters, like spread across this one desk because I don't trust any of them. I've had conversations with chemists all over the place and um, I think I have a reference pH probe, you know, but I had this issue where this one, this new meter that I got was reading like 0.25 lower than, you know, my very expensive reference probe. Right. So then I made sure to use that provided calibration solution at 25 degrees, 77 Celsius, because those calibration solutions are only good for a particular temperature. But then I noticed that those so solutions that were provided had no, no certification, like, you know, just clear juice that somebody whipped up in their basement. That's, you know, it's, it's supposed to do the job. Right. But there's no certification, no expiration date. I'm like, all right, well, let me whip out my, my Hannah. Hanna calibration solutions in Milwaukee and, uh, you know, double check, make sure that they weren't past the expiration date, put them in a water bath, made sure that they were 25 degrees, made sure I was using a good thermometer that, that I trust to tell me 25 degrees or 77 Fahrenheit. It was actually that. And that got me within like 0.1 of my reference, uh, pH meter. Right. But how many people, have gone through the trouble of putting their calibration solution in a water bath with a thermometer that they trust. You know, for example, I got two of those infrared uh, temperature guns. They're, they're like 0. 0.6 degrees Fahrenheit off of each other. <laughs> I always use both at the same time. <laughs> I don't know which one's right or more correct than the other one. But, you know, if you're chasing pH, how do you know that your probe is good? How do you know that your auto temperature compensation is actually working? How do you know your calibration solution is authentic? How do you know your water bath is correct? How do you know the, yeah, you know, just like, it's just a long rabbit hole to make sure that your, your pH reading you're getting from your digital device is actually accurate. And you know, whew, I'm already starting to feel better, but I'm halfway through. 
some of these pH meters, if you read the manual, they say they are accurate to within plus or minus 0.2 degrees of pH. 0.2. That's the difference between 8.2 and 8.4. So your probe could be reading 8.2 and you're chasing 8.4, but you might already be there. <laughs> You know, like if, if you're chasing the numbers, you got to have a really good reference point and like a domino effect of different things, uh, different backups just to verify the results that you're getting. Yeah, so I have two comments about that. Like one is um, a case in point, um, two reef hobbyists that I highly respect for their content and, and their information have... Um, you know, talked about CO2 and they showed which CO2 monitor they were using. And I thought, okay, you know, so I went on Amazon because I was going to buy it because I have no issues with pH, but just it's, I find data interesting, right? So then I was like, mm. I was kind of curious because my house is not very modern. It's from the 90s. I got old wood windows. So it's, it's not a, it, I don't have new house syndrome, which is where you have high CO2 levels because everything's just sealed so well and energy mm. efficient, blah, blah, blah. But I was just curious, you know, like I wonder like what the CO2 levels in my house are. So I went to the Amazon reviews of that exact unit and there's a guy who went out and bought three of them and put them next to each other. And the difference in CO2 that these things were measuring in parts per million was insanely what, different. What was it? Do you remember the numbers? No, I mean, I have it a was... CO2 meter. And the first thing I did when I got it, it's like, I don't trust this thing. I took it outside to make sure it was reading, you know, somewhere close to what atmospheric CO2 is. Yeah. Um, but you don't remember what the numbers were exactly. I mean, no, and this is a, like a self-calibrating like unit. So mm -hmm. I was like, well, how do you calibrate it then? Right. So anyway, not, and again, that does not to discount the reef keepers I respect, but it just got me thinking like, because then you go down this, not to overuse the term rabbit hole, because I've already used it in our discussion, but like then you go to the rabbit hole, it's like, okay, well, what kind of CO2 meter should I buy? And the next thing you know, I'm looking at something that's $250 that I don't need because I'm, I'm just curious. Like I'm literally mm -hmm. just curious what my CO2 is, mm -hmm. but I'm not curious enough to spend $250 on something that I can calibrate and do all kinds of, you know, that's trusted by some independent certification or whatever. Um, the other part is, what do you do with the information sometimes, right? Let's talk about salinity. Um, if you're trying to get like 1.025 or whatever exactly, right? That's not salinity. I mean, um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> All right, let's just say 35 parts per, you know, PPT. Now you're talking my language. Okay. Um, what did you see at 34 or 36 that made you say it's got to be 35, right? And so, um, it's good to chase natural seawater levels, but, um, and this something I wrote down is like misconstruing the severity of the problem, right? And our innate thing need to fix and tinker. Sometimes we blow things out of proportion, right? We boil the ocean. And that's where the chasing numbers piece comes in for me is like, well, what are you trying to fix? And that, that's not attacking people who love to tinker, right? For those folks that are like, hey, I wonder what it would be like in my tank. I wonder what I would observe if I did get my pH fixed with a calcium reactor, right? Like, but I mean, if you want to answer that question of like, what happens to a reef tank if there's a um, natural seawater level 
of calcium and alkalinity and the pH is 8.3, then just set up a separate tank and do two-part dosing and you can answer that question. Mm -hmm. So what are you trying? Well, you know, but I, I respect people that like to tinker, but the it's the side where you start to think like you need to fix something and you go, well, what's the problem? Like, what are you experiencing that is bad? And what are you trying to fix? It's the same with pests, right? Like people will go nuclear, thermonuclear against pests, but sometimes the cure is worse than the problem. I mean, mm. pests are pests. Pests are annoying, right? But All right, don't, don't get too far ahead because I want to talk okay. about that for, for a minute. Um, okay. But, but yeah, you know, same idea with the, uh, like salinity as far as misinformation. I feel like people have not understood or still not putting it together that parts per thousand of salinity is relative to all the parts per million of sodium and chloride and calcium and sulfur and carbonates in your tank. Dude, how much better off would we be if everyone called salinity or described salinity in parts per thousand, not a specific gravity, because then you can simply do the math and understand that when you add up all the constituents, that's your salinity. But you know, it's like the jargon is like getting away from accuracy, right? I will never let someone get away with calling a, a, a coral polyp a head, you know, like to me, a head, like this is a head of hammer coral, you know, something the size of your head, like a head of cabbage. It's not one leaf of cabbage, it's a bunch of leaves. We call that a head of cabbage, right? So I've been calling a head of hammer, like a colony for a long time. And I'm just like, if I don't put my foot down now, it's just, it's not going to be very long until corals have noses and feet and hands, <laughs> you know, it's just like, I, and, and, and I know like some very experienced reefers who is just, I don't know, more like as a, I don't know, just to be a rebel or something or maverick. They just insist on calling Lords acans around me, especially around me, knowing that I have like an acanthastria collection of all different species. You know, it's really frustrating because if we could just, uh, you know, separate the acanthastrias, including the orange lobophilias, from the actual micromusa lords and the, all the different other species of micromusa, we could start to really identify the actually rare corals. You know, the rare species of acanthastria, like acanthastria hemphrichii or micromusa multipunctata, you know, but there's this weird, just uh, stubbornness and it's not even stubborn. It's like, you, you know what the real word is. It's, you know, salinity is not specific gravity. Lords are not acans. Uh, almost every coral you're calling platygyra is not platygyra. Actual platygyra is freaking gorgeous and is the most like symmetrically scribbled coral you can possibly get. You know, and so I just feel like we lose a lot of, a lot of information by people jumping in or like, you know, being really married to the jargon that gets us away from accuracy. This is a little bit more fringe stuff that doesn't really make reefing harder, but it, it, it in my mind, it, it stifles progress. I think it does make it harder. And when you initially started this conversation with misinformation, I thought that's what you were getting at. Because if you misidentify the species, and we talked about that with the Asterina nastra starfish, right? It's interesting when you start to actually look the genus up that is proper, you find all this interesting scientific journaling, you know, abstract Research. papers, and it's kind of cool. You can learn a crap ton about did these you, new did you read a couple little starfish. Papers about Aquilonastras? I did. 
I, I feel did. like you went on Google Scholar and you used the word. You're like, oh, well, how many species are there and where do they occur? <laughs> it's I fascinating. Did. And, well, and then when you notice how many there are, you're like, well, wait, which is the one that's probably common in our tanks, right? So that leads you to like even further and deeper, right? But um, so on that front, there's a bit of a misinformation. I do get that. Um, like I still use the word refugium around you because I'm lazy. And I recognize that it should be called. Can't win them all. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's some jargon that's just been so established in the hobby that it's like, okay, I think we all know what we're talking about. But on the same front, like, I do sometimes people say like, oh, you know, uh, so let's not, you know, let's, let's not make a big deal about calling this, that, or this, that. And it's all like, right, well, here's, here's I get an that you can pick a side, right? Well, hold on. Like you can pick being a like, ah, come on, screw the scientific jargon. I'm just a hobbyist, man. Give me a break. But then that same guy five minutes later will try to be all sciencey, and it's like you know I just pick a lane, man. Like um, sort of like what you talked about with par, right? It's like oh, let me show you these graphs that I got from my uh, my um, uh, wh- what is the par meter everybody uses? Um, uh, Apogee, right? Apogee. And it's like, oh, I'm going to be sciencey and argue that this light's better than that light, and look at these graphs, and then they don't use the term micromoles, and it's like. It's like I want to be sciencey, but I I'm not gonna. Blue light is not measured in, in in micromoles. Like it's just it's just like right tapering off. It's actually you know as far as brightness, it's actually measured in milliwatts, right? So there is a cutoff. I don't exa- don't know exactly where it's at, but there's a point where it's it's like no longer lumens of red, green, yellow, or white light. Then you get into the deeper blues, which we love, and it's not lumens anymore. It's milliwatts, and it's like. You have to understand the sensitivity of the, the of the the par curve, right? And if you understand what micromoles are, it's just how many. It, it's just saying how many. Well, and then but, again, right, when we're arguing about that, are we just making the hobby more confusing and harder, right? Because most of the lights you can buy are fine. <laughs> yes, I'm so, I'm so freaking lowly. But all right, here's a, an example um, of the refugium conundrum. Uh, Let's see, Geo's Reef. Geo's Reef started offering these cryptic reactors. Uh, just a reactor, just an empty reactor that you're supposed to put just random stuff inside, but not algae. And I'm like, so a refugium? <laughs> you know, it's just like you're coming up with new names. And here's the thing. It's a slippery slope. You let, you know, folks just call things what they want. And next thing you know, there's like different dialects for different parts of a single state and no one can talk the same language. If we can, you know, keep things a little bit homogenized, then we can learn from our reef keeping brothers in Europe. Then we can learn from our reef keeping friends in Australia and Singapore and Japan. You know, that's what I'm trying to get at. Right. If we well, stick and to what things are actually called, like salinity and specific gravity. Anyway, I don't want to rant about that too much, but um, we have a lot more to get through. I will just say there's been some discussions about how to save the hobby, right? Things are going to get closed down. We're going to lose the ability to potentially collect in locations, this and that. Uh, There's people out there giving reef keeping a bad name. And one of our best allies is like how we partner with the scientific community, right? And there's Mm -hmm. always the thing that I always loved about reef keeping is that there has always been a really good partnership with a lot of uh, that scientific community. Um, It used to be. Used to be. There was a so point was. where, like, it was really, they were about to dovetail. 
and this this is where it hurts me. <laughs> I know we're still like we're just talking about names. This is like part two of our coral names matter. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was a time when like the scientists and the reefers were like starting to overlap and what it is they were doing. But now people are getting so jargony with stuff and they're trying to like make up names just to kind of like be in the know that they're alienating the scientists. And now the scientists are basically taking all of our experience and our equipment that we've paid for over generations to get developed. And they're using it to save Caribbean corals and coming up with their own names for fragging corals, like micro fragmentation. And they're starting to cut us out of the picture while they're saving corals or preserving corals or spawning corals using our techniques and our equipment with just like zero, you know, kickback or credit to the 30 or 40 years of, you know, hard work that we've done. And that's because we're alienating the scientific community and, but with, you know, goofy names. Well, and that's all I was going to say too, is it's, if we want to preserve that or bring that back i mean then you have to be you know, a bit sciencey right you gotta like have to do only your... move that way it doesn't have to only no. move that direction like yeah. you said pick a lane right so if you want to go off and have the equivalent of reverse spinning rims on your souped up you know rgb led car you know pc mod whatever okay go ahead you go to that direction but if you're going to start talking about par at least know that it stands for photosynthetically active radiation and the units are micromoles per meter squared per second. And you don't have to say it that way every time. You can just say micromole or micros. I would be happy if they just said micros. <laughs> just, just call them out. I got 750 micros uh, peak par in my acroporate. Um, all right. That was a good <laughs> old man get off my lawn <laughs> part of this reef therapy session. I promise that the rest of it won't be like this. Let's get back on track to things sure. that make reef aquariums harder i don't know if anything makes reef aquariums harder than diseases and pests and parasites um both more on corals more so on corals because if you're new the difference between a thriving coral and a coral that is like really going downhill that can be a very fine line Right. See, you for know, me, I, the we... uh the more apparent and the thing that shows up in again the attacks on our hobby is the fish, right? I mean, coral collection looks evil to outsiders, period, right? Oh, they're going mm -hmm. in there with their chisels and they're hacking up the coral reef. But mortality rates in fish is just an ugly thing. And I... The, the mortality rate of wild collected aquarium fish is a fraction of the mortality rate of fish collected for food. True, but it's if you just want to, If you really care about the planet ecologically speaking every fish you pull out of the ocean is dead it is no longer a part of that environment it's not breeding it's not grazing it's not picking on certain pests and parasites it is ecologically dead whether you fish it for food or you try to keep it alive you know so this tree hugger argument is just like oh look at all these dead yellow tangs i'm like yeah but yeah. that's the what you're saying is the reality the facts and there's a battle <laughs> no but there's a battle, battle for to the souls there, there's a fight back, right, with the Hawaii fishery. Like, look, here are the facts, right? But you also have to fight perception, right? And to me, I, I wish that I, I, like I said, I had nothing but praise for TSM Aquatics and the fish I ordered from them that were properly quarantined, came in eating like pigs, and I thought, man, that that could be a future, right? We could get to a point where uh, livestock that is 
more expensive, but properly medicated and quarantined. And I know there's people there out there that are against prophylactically treating fish and whatever. That's a different debate. But it, I mean, I, you know, I didn't have to fight a whole lot of fish diseases in the freshwater realm. And I mean, even oh recently, God. it's there. Unless you're it happens. plants, just kiss it with a little bit of salt and 90% of your problems are gone. Or just increase your temperature to 90 and for a week and you know freshwater ick is dead gone you know it's it's pretty um bye-bye but i you know the things that we deal with it's and to your point the mysterious corals things like what you talked about where you have this mysterious ailment or like the rbtas you know like shriveling away and that's the stuff you're right it makes the hobby hard i don't i don't don't mind that the anemones so much because that's that's there's always like a bleeding edge where you expect some some you know uh, speed bumps in the road, right? I don't mind that one. That's that's kind of newer. We're starting to figure it out. Um, what I do mind is coral vendors, you know, or you know, coral propagators. Not the, not the wild coral guys, but the more the people who are fragging stuff a lot, who put a lot of things in their tanks to mediate and 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 manage, you know, aptasia in their in their system or algae growth with herbivores or certain pests and parasites with what you know continuous dipping. Dude, there's a lot of these coral fraggers that just straight just dip everything once a week. Right? So when you when you send this frag plug to somebody and it has just like microscopic aptasia and bryopsis, maybe some coral pests and parasites and you send it to a system that doesn't have all those mitigation mitigating factors to manage the pests and the coral disease and the you know the dipping it's just like this seed bomb of all these problems coming into your tank and it's not fair it's it's really not fair and i'm sure like i don't know if it's going to take 5 years or 20 years but what in the future that's just not going to be okay all right like, i mean perfect analog is freshwater planted tanks you know we used to get plants from that were uh, submerged grown from all over the place and they would come in with snails and they would come in with all these different algaes and blackbeard and yada yada and now they can just get you know a lot of those plants tissue cultured and bada bing bada boom all that stuff is gone right and i'm i'm, I'm this is not really like pointing at, at the coral propagators i'm just saying like if you're new to the hobby and you get some of these dirty frag plugs and you've tried to keep the algae and the aptasia at bay. And you haven't had your, you know, your, your, uh, introductory course on coral pests and parasites. You know, you might be buying some frags from any number of companies, put them in your tank and you've done everything right. You've done everything right. Your, your, your actual solidity is on point. Your temperature is good. Your mineral balance, your nutrients, lighting and everything, everything could be fine. But now you have corals that have pests and you're pulling your hair out because unless you have, you know, some pretty good tools or some experience with what to look out for, you don't know what's wrong and it's stressful. Well, and, and that's also, not what the reef tank is supposed to be about. And and this is sort of what, this is part of why I don't, I, I don't find the whole chop shop thing that's happening now appealing is something that's been in the trade a long time and has been propagated for a long time has had lots of time to adapt to captivity. And those are very hardy corals, right? Your ORA corals are, are you know, they're not bomb-proof, but they're pretty freaking hardy corals. The problem is, is when you go buy frags and you, wh- what really what you're buying is a cutting of an LPS that just came in and then they chopped it up into a million little single polyp heads and they're selling it, 
you are not reaping the benefits of aquaculture in terms of hardiness, right? You are still buying a wild coral. You're buying a portion of it. And it's mm -hmm. still going to come with its potential hardships, right? Dude, it could I, have stuff growing in the skeleton on the underside, right? Right. It could have sponge and, and different things that are going to grow out of it that could take a month to a couple of years to manifest themselves in your soil. Vermitate is a good one. And it know? was hacked off a reef, or let's say it's mariculture. It was growing out in the ocean. It went through like hell getting to you. It's it's still an uphill battle, right? Whereas something that's been grown under artificial lights and ups and downs of alkalinity and blah, blah, blah is a hardy thing. You know, like getting frags from your butt, like from somebody in your community that's had a reef tank running for 20 years that needs to hack its corals back, giving those corals to a beginner is way more success. You know, there's more success built into that than so say- So I, I used to have kind of a self-righteous stance on, you know, fresh cut corals. And, you know, I used to hate it. I really did. And over a long timeline, though, you are, in a way, adding value to that wild collected colony. But it should be a lot more clear, you know, whether you're buying the, the coral strain that you're describing that's been through tanks for decades or more, or if you're, you know, buying a fresh cut piece of something that's just been parsed out. And those are kind of easy to tell because they're usually going to be triangular or square shaped with very, very, you know, straight edges on the side. And so, you know, it really should be two categories of frags. It sh that should be yeah, really, and it's, really clear. I'm not saying there's no room for that in the hobby. I just, mm -hmm. for the topic that's in scope, right? How we make things harder. I think it used to be by frags, not colonies back in the mm -hmm. day. And we, we we even shied away from maricultured SPS because even those guys were kind of tricky sometimes. And now that line has been very blurred, right? So that general advice is very hard to give to somebody because you don't know anymore what's been, you know, culture. Right, should be, we should have a culture, uh, you know, like just an aquarium culture that is um, very adamant about whether this is an old coral or a new coral. I don't care how big it is. And, you know, not all frags are the same. Not give all it a different name, right? I mean, we have a different name for mariculture and aquaculture. Just give, the chop shop is a bad word. Sounds bad, right? So give it something more eloquent, but at least just I'd call it what it is, right? In terms of uh, how we can differentiate something that's truly been aquacultured or truly been grown out and fragged. Versus something that just, hey, I just got this nice colony of Dragon Soul Favia and I'm just going to chop it up into little single polyps and sell each Dragon Soul Favia, which is not a Favio. I, <laughs> I like that one misinformation. I, well, it's, again, it's not like totally misinformation. It's just not hyper accurate. Like Favia is a certain group of corals and they have a certain behavior and they have certain preferences. Whereas Goniastria, Dragon Soul slash Prism Favia, it's, it's just not a Favia. That's all. Just putting it out there. But you know, it's just funny when you're like, if you, if someone wants to learn their moon corals, their moon brains, um, and you point out an actual Favia, somebody might be re who's used to the Dragon Soul slash Prism, we're going to be like really confused because it looks nothing like a Dragon Soul or Prism Favia. And so this is a great time to mention that our next book review is going to be on Coral Finder 2021. If you want to really know your corals with names that are going to last, you know, for hundreds of years, I think, <laughs> and not just whatever your local market calls them, this is going to be a fun, fun book review. I can't wait to talk about some really esoteric oddball corals.
anyway, about that. All right, let's talk about some like fish health. I believe, just in my casual estimates, that maybe five to ten percent of local fish stores actually quarantine. I would say that more fish stores throw their fish into a tank they call quarantine. They might like just mechanically go through the motions of throwing copper in there, but that doesn't treat everything. And man, I just feel like getting a really hardy, robust aquarium conditioned fish is way too much up to the luck of the draw. Way too much. You know, sometimes I go into stores and I'll see lots of barber pole gobies and diamond gobies and, you know, flasher wrasses and different species of fish that you just never see in someone's old tank. I'm not saying those fish never live, but you see a much wider representation of fish for sale at the retail level than you see living for years in people's aquariums. I think it's a good assessment. I mean, certain fish are shorter lived, right? But, um, it is interesting when you think about the fish that hang around long enough. Uh, it, it tends to be a common set of fish, right? Usually people have longevity with clownfish um, tangs. Like, you know, I know lots of people that have 10, 15-year-old tangs. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's a smaller subset, but it's still represented as angelfish, right? I know people that have had, you know, decade-old uh, angelfish. Um, but uh, yeah, it sort of stops there for a lot even, of cases. Right, some of those nano gobies, they might not live that long, except for the fact that I have a trimagobi that I just saw for the first time after like two years because he's so freaking small and he's in my mangrove tank. And I was looking on the back and I just saw a random assortment of spots. I'm just like, holy crap, I got that nano gobi like two years ago. And I just, I forgot that he was in there. It probably hadn't been two years since I'd seen him. And yes, some of these fish are shorter lived, but you just see such a huge representation of fish at the local fish store. I'm not saying they have to live for years and decades. Like nothing comes close to angelfish, clownfish, and surgeon fish. You know, wrasses, depending on the species, they're, uh, you know, uh, burn out bright. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But yeah, you just... And that, I'm not talking about like durability long term. I'm just saying there's a lot of people that get some of these fish that just they just need more attention. They need a, a certain setup, but I'm not even talking about them. I'm talking about the fish store who just brings in whatever, and it's up to the end user, you know, <laughs> end user, the the aquarist to figure out how to keep them alive. You know, I have seen three stores with orange spotted file fish this last week. Three of them. There must have been 10 orange spotted filefish across three stores. Like, we know that it is possible to condition those fish and get them to live in an aquarium that is not necessarily populated with SPS corals that they need to eat. But of those 10 orange spotted filefish that I saw just in three stores, how many more are at other stores? How many of those are going to live, I don't know, two months, three months? None, man. Freaking none. <laughs> it's just, I just put it out there. Yes, some of them might live, but no, it's just, it's just not going to happen. That's an, again, that's an extreme example. Um, cleaner wrasses can do well. Um, mandarins used to be really hard. Um, it's just, it's just frustrating. These stores, they just, they treat a lot of, of, of fish like hot potatoes and they pass that problem on to the customer. And then the customer, instead of enjoying their tank, is stressing and worrying about what to do about this disease. And just like you 
you said earlier, the, uh, the treatment might be worse than the cure. Sorry, the cure might be worse than the disease. Well, and so, I mean, I have, I think um, the businesses that are now approaching it from a, I'm going to, you know, I may be a little more expensive, but I quarantine the fish for a month. Like that's that, that you're seeing that now in the trade. And I think that's a really positive. And personally speaking, if I was in the business of selling wildly collected animals, if that was my, what I did for a living, like I would probably try to approach it from a way of conditioning those fish to be ready for captivity as well. But whether somebody listening or anyone just disagrees with that, that's fine. But in the scope, again, of our discussion of what makes this hobby hard, the fact that you have to suddenly become a disease expert on fish does make the hobby more difficult, right? Like you if every dog down. came with like parasites, and some of them do, I get that. But I mean, like if if that was just part of it, like it's going to make the whole process more difficult, more challenging, more expensive, more frustrating, just a given. I mean, whether you get a sick fish too, like um, any most of your wild clownfish are going to come down with brook. Um, you, then you have to go down a rabbit hole that there's where there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's different when you go down a rabbit hole of trying to learn a bunch of stuff that's going to enlighten you. But because there's so much noise, you're going to be offered like five different ways to treat, you know, the ick in your aquarium. And somebody out there is going to say, oh, you should try Kick Egg by Ruby Reef. It's been around for like 30 years and I don't know anyone who swears by it. It's almost like the business model is built off of, you know, people who don't know no better. Like if, if the yeah. stuff really, really, really worked, you know, outside of laboratory settings and like an average reef tank, we would know about it. And then this would not be an issue. Right. But it's just, that's just not the case. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I, and I'm not I advocating that they have to sell disease free fish by definition, right. Or guarantee or whatever. It's just, um, you know, the good, the good local like fish stores, you know, they do a good job of keeping the water at therapeutic levels. They do a good job of investing in conditioning the fish, right? Uh, I always liked when fish stores would put the date of oh, when the yeah, fish that's arrived. A, that's an awesome one. When you see a fish has been there for like, here's a, here's a lot of side story. You know, every year I go around and hit up like all the fish stores in the aquarium in, in Colorado. And um, I went by Neptune's Tropical Fish, and they had a blackback butterfly, uh, Ketodon melanotus, uh, one year. I was like, oh, man, that's a cool fish. And he'd been there for like, I don't know, three months. Next year, I'm doing the rounds, and I go to Neptune's, and I see the fish again. I'm like, oh, man, you're still here? Oh, you would be so cool for my fish tank. And I didn't get him. Then another year passes that I went through and I could still see the sticker of exactly they'd been there for like two freaking years because very few people have a fish saltwater fish tank nowadays. And that fish will eat the bejesus out of your corals. <laughs> like it just won't even pretend. And on the third time that I like had a date with this fish, I'm like, all right, back him up. I'm, I'm taking him home. <laughs> I'm taking him home. <laughs> so yes, having the date on the tank is, is awesome. Um, but yeah, I just feel bad for, you know, people like you said, like they all of a sudden have to become a disease expert and there's not a guidebook and there's nothing great at the end of that experience. Except yeah. your fish that you paid decent money for is hopefully still alive. 
right? So, man, I cannot stress this enough for the newbies and for the experienced aquarist to tell everyone to pay more for your fish from places like marine collectors or TSM or live aquaria or anyone else that you know that does uh, you know really at least tries to quarantine and condition fish sometimes man it can be hard to see a, a sticker price of like 149 dollars on a flame angel man that is nothing compared to just the the huge amount of unfun that you might have spreading the disease to your tank and trying to learn you know how to fix the fish and then buying all these medications like those sticker prices i'm telling you for the quarantine fish they are incredibly worth it yeah and it, it, we talked about aquaculture mariculture but now that captive breeding of fish has really taken off right um and i mean shout out to biota with their yellow tangs and their mandarins and you could just stock a nice reef tank from their captive bred selection alone, right? Like they have such a good variety, but there's an inherent benefit to those fish as well, because, you know, they are raised in fairly bio safe or, you know, fairly uh, disease free areas. Biosecure. Yes, absolutely. The captive the chain of custody might affect that, right? Like if that thing goes to your local fish store or to a wholesaler, but still, I mean, most places, I think, not all, obviously, not universally, they tend to put all the captive bred fish in their own system specifically so they don't have to deal with the problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, I think Live Aquaria does that for sure with uh, Biota. Yep, yep. Um, so if right. we want to talk about fish, I got one jumping off point, and that's just um, – and this can lead into equipment as well, but um, just people – like um bio load is less of a topic in terms of problem solving i've noticed and i think we make things harder by making the bio load more challenging to maintain just keep less fish <laughs> i mean i, I would go fish. next step i don't even think it's the bio load you know like if you have a crazy bio load like all right you know get with the program but for the most part almost universally if you have algae problems you're feeding your fish too much just mm -hmm. it just it just never fails right you can feed your fish so much less and so it's you know sure there's definitely an aspect of the bio load um as far as your aquarium but people feeding their fish you know just like a, a cornucopia buffet of frozen food that we don't even eat and they're spending 30 to $40 a week, man, I worked, I worked retail a long time. And I'll tell you, we, we, you know, we, uh, itemized a lot of the things that we sold, um, by departments and sure enough, man, frozen food was like a thousand dollars in profit per week for an average size aquarium store 10 years ago, you know, 10 years ago, it was a lot more rare for a fish store to have a single, like, you know, clear door freezer. And now you'll see like two, three, five. That's not by accident. 
And the fish stores have every incentive to just be like, yeah, sure, go ahead, feed all that frozen food. I'm very happy to sell you all the cleanup crew you need that you think is going to take care of your algae problem, a bigger protein skimmer, some lanthanum chloride, um, more salt to clean it all up, and you know all the, the phosphate and nitrate-reducing media that you could ever want. But if you're not getting it at the source, you're not really fixing the problem. Yeah, I, I mean, I know um, there was a lot of disagreement about us doubling down on dry food. I still stand by that on a personal, oh, yeah. anecdotal level. Uh, if, if I'm not trying to tell you what to do, interviews, but, yeah. if you watch some of Reef Bums interviews and you talk to a lot of experienced reefers, they have frozen fruit in their freezer. Some of it might be a month old. Some of it might be two years old, right? But like just the daily is always dry food, right? I mean, think about it. Just, just, just do the thought experiment. How many days in the row are you going to go to the freezer and thaw out some food for your fish? First couple of years, sure. Three, four, five years, you're going to start like, you know, mixing it up with some flake and pellets. When you've been reefing or keeping any kind of fish for a long time, you were not going to go to the freezer twice a day to thaw out some frozen food to feed your fish. You're just like, you know what? Pellets, flakes, you guys, you got it. You got it. Here's some nori. Here you go. You know, how many times are you going to go to the freezer in your reef aquarium career to thaw out some food for all your fish? Just think about it. (laughs) 10,000 times after, I don't know, six years, like, no, no, you you get well, to a point. If somebody ever naturally, wants to challenge me on that, I want to ask them what they feed their dog. <laughs> you know, do you cook him a meal, him or her a meal every night? Do you do mm-hmm. the raw diet with your dog, or are you picking up, you know, a canned food or 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 dry, you know, you know, um, dry dog food? But and again, this goes back to. I don't have all the, I mean, uh, the the other topic we were considering, right? Can I mention it or should I leave that off the table? But um, I'll just touch touch on it. Something that's always rattled my brain a bit and, you know, I I think about when I'm bored is if I had unlimited time and money uh, and energy and space, all the things that I would love to do a true experiment, like a data-driven experiment on instead of just the anecdotal, well, I saw this and this happened, right? And when we talk about food, um, that would be a fun experiment, right? But at the same rate, if I'm going to go on my own experiences, um, I have 16-year-old clownfish that just spawned yesterday. They spawn all the freaking time. I have a good track record of keeping pygmy and large difficult angelfish for more than a decade and that's not uh meant to be a humble brag it just means that my lazy approach to feeding my what i like to jokingly call careful neglect i don't have any evidence to say that um that is a problem now somebody could come back and say well that angelfish that lived 16 years for you could have lived 25 if you had fed frozen more often I don't know. You know, I don't have a way to prove that. I don't have, I, I'm not immortal, so I'm not going to spend the next 26 years testing that theory. And the other side of it is like, well, that's looking at one variable. That would mean that all the other variables are baselined, right? Are equal, are standardized, are the same. But if I'm dumping a bunch of frozen food into my tank, my personal opinion is is that I'm also throwing in some risk of water quality issues. I have to approach things differently. 
Uh, I, you know, I talked the other day about decomposition and how that impacts the reef tank. And so not all the variables are the same either, right? Um, so there's nothing compelling for me to start pushing more frozen food. In the last month or two, I've actually increased my frozen treats out of sheer curiosity, right? Because I see a lot of people challenging that notion. So I'm like, all right, I'm an open mind. Like, I love to be wrong. It's like, it's, I don't feel like I need to live in my echo chamber, chamber where I'm always right. So I'm like, this, all right, I let would me like start. to say that when I have a strong position about something, there is nothing more than I would love than to be proven wrong because then that means I learned something. Absolutely. And in my own psyche, like I, the devil in my brain is like, well, shoot, you know, let's go, let's go experiment a little. Like, I'm, that's just how yeah. it works. Like, I like absolutely to, to, to like, well, maybe I'm missing something because that's the like, whole... you're always wanting to do better in this hobby, right? You're always trying to yeah. fix a problem. So you're like, maybe I'm missing something. Like maybe, uh, you know, fish are different if I feed more frozen food. <laughs> that's why I'm going down this rabbit hole about different like pH scales and different pH probes and calibration solutions. And that's why I have like this OCD level of like multiple scales to, and like calibration weights to double check my pipetter to make sure that when I'm, you know, the volume of water I'm testing is actually accurate. It's, 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 there's a good, there's a good treat at the end of that rainbow. Either I'm right and I've been doing it right all along, or I'm wrong and I have room for improvement. Like that's one of those great rabbit holes to go down to. <laughs> and, and just like, cause at the end, you're really going to learn something. Well, but, and, and I mean, that goes back to us. We are expressing opinions, not fact, right? And, and if you have an opinion, there's room for improvement or room to be like, oh, you know what? Let me go over here and start tinkering with this to see if my opinion is, is, is in line with, you know, uh, those experiences. Whereas if you're in a fact, like you don't feel like the need to challenge yourself in your own thinking, I think. All right. Let me bring us back to like the central tenant of this discussion um you know you talked about like you know the feeding and i for sure for sure one of the things that makes reefing uh harder is too much just too much of anything too much light too much sand too yeah. much rock too much food too many fish too many corals you know if you have let's say a four foot tank with 10 corals in it you are going to love and enjoy and appreciate those 10 coral colonies and get to know them way better than if you have 50, you know, large frags with no personality or character or no branches for your, you know, smaller fish to swim in between. But man, I swear there is an inverse correlation. I, I challenge anyone to uh, uh, prove me wrong on this one. There's an inverse correlation between the dude. How many tanks do you see before they're set up that have that immaculate sump and the crazy plumbing and all the bells and all the whistles and special holders for the holders for the controllers of your vortex pumps or your protein skimmer or your lights? Where are those tanks with the corals and the livestock? Where are those good? You know, and just, just having too much just takes you out of it. It really does. The simplest reef tanks, you know, they might not achieve 
a hundred percent of the results of a tank that you know you're driving like a race car right with lots of fine tuning to happen but you might enjoy it a lot more because you're not butting with everything yeah and that it's a it's a it's i don't want to simplify things because there's a lot there's a lot of things going on but you know from a beginner standpoint it's all about import and export right it's a it's a it's a box of water right it's a closed system so if you feed too much that's too much import if you have too many fish producing waste that's t- contributing on the import side right um and too many fish breathing and respiring, that's going to drop your pH. If you have too many fish pooping, then that detritus is going to go somewhere and decompose and also affect your pH and tank your orb and on and on and on. It's just right. like a, a vicious feedback uh, loop that is just not freaking helping. And you I know, think I that's feel like, segue. Sorry, go ahead. I feel like the measure of, of a really mature, whether you're new or old, but like a mature aquarist is how little critical equipment they they actually use. And that's, that's totally that's, subjective. No, and that I, is my that's, point of view. That's where I was going with it because what you choose to put into it is is your choice. But then the equipment comes into play on the export side, right? And um, this drills into probably the next thing we're talk about, which is equipment, which is when somebody says you need this, right? Like, do I need a skimmer for a reef tank? Yes, you need it, right? That frames the conversation in a bad way. What the conversation should be is a skimmer is a form of export, right? Mm-hmm. It's a tool that you can choose to use in the the side of export, right? So is a macroalgae scrubber. So are water changes, right? Bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Algae water <laughs> exchange. Um <laughs> Man, it's like a grammar Nazi, but for reef keeping, man. No, I said, bless you. Thank you so much for saying algae, macro algae scrub. Oh, I thought you were mad about the water change versus water exchange. I know you uh, got No, no, me. no. I was, uh, I was uh, very okay. happy All with right, your we're macro algae um, scrubber. But the, the, the conversation you should have with a beginner is um, there's import and export, right? Now, if you choose to reduce your import, you know, have a low bio load, feed less, then maybe things can be a little more simplified on the export realm, right? In terms of equipment, right? Um, it's sort of like a lot of nano reef keepers will answer the question, do I need a skimmer with? No, because it's too damn easy to do a water change on a 10 gallon tank. It is tank. so easy. Oh, dude, I love protein skimmers yeah. so much. I think they are so cool to have for aeration, for gas exchange, for nutrient export. And they're just fun to watch and they're cathartic to clean and tune up. They're freaking awesome. And I love everything nano. I do. I, I absolutely do. I, I talk but about having the nano a nano re- skimmer yeah. on, a, on a nano tank is kind of silly. I feel like the nano reef, the dedicated hardcore nano guys deserve so much credit in terms of furthering the hobby, right? Because there's so much common sense and so much stripped down in terms of even how they frame a discussion. Like you don't need a skimmer on a five gallon tank because it's too damn easy to do a water you don't change need on to a five gallon tank. For that exact same reason. You don't need to dose on a five gallon tank. Just do For a that water exact change. same reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, that's where we make it hard because it's like, should I get a skimmer? Yes. It's like, well, hold on. Let's talk about the getting a skimmer is a good idea. 
Yeah. Right? It's a good idea. Is it mandatory? No. Do you need an RO unit? It's a great idea for a lot of application. Is it mandatory? No. I tend to think that an RO, RO you know, water purification is way more useful for softwater freshwater fish than it is for saltwater fish. Almost everything you'd want to take out, like carbon blocks or DI resin, is going to take you 90%, 90-plus percent of the way. You know, so there's I a lot get of these, that these- it levels the playing field of discussion when somebody comes in and says, I've got random corals dying, right? Instead of asking like, well, have you had your tap water tested? Where do you live? And getting into the particulars, it's just easy just to flat out blanket suggest everyone get an RO DI because it's like, again, it's like in the terms of variables, you've eliminated a possible variable to the discussion of figuring out what's okay, wrong. Okay, but we've talked about but this before. to your point, that doesn't mean it's necessary. I, we've talked about this before and, yeah. you know, my uh, shtick with our units, people think that if you have a RO uh, purification, like you're golden, you have flawless water out the back. This kind of almost like circles back to the um, uh, chasing numbers, right? You have a pH meter, it's digital, it seems really great, but you haven't read the manual to figure out what the deviation is. Same thing with RO unit. Under certain conditions, you're, you, you have a specific rejection rate, right? At low pressure, uh, like let's say a low quality membrane at low pressure in cold water is going to have like a 92 to 95% re- rejection rate. So you still have 5% getting through. That 5% is a lot lower than it was before, except for the part where you're constantly adding fresh water so you have less accumulation because you think you're golden with your RO unit, right? So you really need to drill down. That is kind of fundamentally what makes reefing hard is having all this equipment that you think is saving your ass. But if you don't really understand it, it's going to get you into more troubles because you won't be able to identify the issues that your tank is experiencing because you don't fundamentally understand that your digital pH, you know, meter or monitor has a deviation of 0.2 pH or that your, you know, RO unit, um, depending on the condition, has a rejection rate between 92 and 96%, right? So if you want to get into the weeds, let's go, bro. I will throw down with anybody getting into the weeds on what some of this equipment does or what it's supposed to do. But when you mechanically go through the motions of installing, using, or relying on this equipment without fundamentally understanding its limitations, that's going to get you into more trouble. That's what I mean. Well, and and for me, it's also just framing. Sorry, I got a little passionate there. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's good. Um, it's it's how we discuss things. And and that's where I, I think it's um, blanket advice is, I, I, I see some of the intent is good there. I, I just think that um, why not have a discussion on what the tool is trying to solve for and do you need it, right? Uh, it's like a, a guy telling a nano guy, you don't need a skimmer on a two-gallon tank. Like, their logic is sound, right? But on a larger system, I love skimmers, and I always run skimmers, so I'm not trying to say you don't need a skimmer. I'm just saying I could probably set up a 75-gallon tank with just two clownfish and maybe one tang and, and just More some nice that. corals, and I could keep the bio load very simple and uh, probably run that on very minimal tooling on the export side of things, right? Um, the Paletta book, we were chatting about books outside, but there's like a notable reef tanks, um, 
um, the guy who founded ESV, um, Stark, Robert Stark. Stark. Yes. His tank is displayed in that book. It runs on a hot magnum canister filter, right? The guy who, in I, I don't think he probably doesn't have this tank anymore. It's an old book, but... I have guy, my original, my first filter I ever bought. It's a hot magnum 250. I have it yeah. 25 years later. It doesn't have a push button. It has the angled inlet and outlets, not the curved ones. Um, anyway, that's... But yeah, you read the write-up of that tank. He kept the bio load low, right? He, he intentionally went in at it with a certain approach and he didn't have to have, you know, um, uh, a city uh, sewage treatment plant level plumbing underneath it to, to keep it all running. And so I mm-hmm. think that's the, I think that's what makes things hard, right? Is that we, we frame things in a weird way now when we discuss things. Um, and you end up with all of this advice on gear, but really like you're not looking at, um, at, at, you're not you're not really looking at the simplicity of like oh you know maybe look at your bio load look how much you're feeding right like mm-hmm. th- that doesn't cost you any money yeah I don't know no I think there's 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 a need for the community to come to some kind of consensus about a very basic fundamental reef aquarium recipe. And then once you start deviating from that, you're making a different cake, right? If your cake doesn't come out right, well, you didn't follow the very basics of like, you know, uh, you know, flour, water, eggs, and a pinch of salt and some baking powder, right? Then you obviously you can make a cake a lot of different ways, but you, you need those core tenants. And, you know, maybe we need a little bit more of that in the reef aquarium hobby. You know, how different would this hobby be if we had come into a degree of maturity alongside the modern freshwater aquarium hobby, right? I feel like a lot of the information started getting spread and shared and compared and vetted with the internet. And it just exploded a little bit too much without any kind of guide rails. And I think that's, that's one of that's, you know, it's like a a very double-edged sword because on the one hand we had feedback and the anecdotal observations from so many people. And it's just hard for experienced aquarists, mature reefers to sort through it. And it's like quasi impossible for a newbie. I mean, I swear, I I also, you know, I, I, I peruse a bunch of different forums and just kind of a lurker or whatever. And I'll, you know, people will have a question and it takes a lot of restraint to try to clarify what somebody is saying a lot of the time, but you'll get, you know, someone's like, Oh, my fish is feeling this. And then they'll get like seven different answers. And very rarely do they all agree on, on the, the course of action. You know, um, all right. Well, I have one major. Well, hold on. I got one more thing about equipment. Okay, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, there's so much bickering about lights, right? Um, this light's better than that light. That's better than this light. And and at the end of the day, most of the well-known reef keeping lights will grow coral great, right? And I feel I'm like I'm going to set the record straight right now. Radeon G5, Castle 500X. Acroptics. That's peak lighting. I'm not saying that's the only light. A lot of stuff will grow, a lot of different things, but those lights, that's that's the Lamborghinis, the Ferrari, the Maserati. But so anyway. my my point is 
if you're having issues with your tank, um, the thing that's going to break your tank or, or kill your fish and corals is not your lights. The it's lights the, is like the last thing. <laughs> right. It's the crappy heaters. It's the crappy mm. magnetic mounts, mm-hmm. right? That's where yep. the discussion yep, yep, yep. needs to go. Um, like I recently uh, ordered um, a magnetic thing from somebody who seems to be pretty passionate about 3D printed with a little bit of epoxy with some random magnets that they got off AliExpress. They no, up in um, there, but they're not fully sealed. And then water got into them. And they started swelling, and they this started guy left like, just leaching stuff in into it, your tank. And it's clear, <sighs> and even worse. So the magnet is like loose in there, and I thought. I mean, I, I don't know why, but I thought, you know, okay, so there's thermal expansion with something like a magnet, right? And that could cause the epoxy and the plastic to crack. I wonder if thermal expansion and the increase of the air pressure is better. But the point is, is like, I found it interesting that he had a different take on it. But at the same rate, it's like, this is what we should talk about, right? Because what nukes tanks these days, right? It's a freaking magnetic mount in your sump that you forgot about that's just leaching all kinds of metals perfect segue into my final biggest gripe with what makes reef aquarium tanks harder you know i've set up 15 20 ish tanks in the last three years that i'm still running and i'm testing all kinds of new equipment and the hardest thing granted i'm using a lot of new stuff right and and new concept devices bad equipment there's a lot of bad equipment out there that works well at first right in their clinical clean room testing facilities but when you put them into the super harsh environment with actual pressure and biofouling and seawater it's a whole different game it's a whole different game and i feel like that is the only thing that has given legs to devices that you know black box led lights and uh, gbal or oem devices that you buy for a fraction of the price I mean, why do you think it's a fraction of the price because people use it and it looks it works amazing on day 1 works amazing no one writes their reviews of the products 6 months later a year later 2 years later you know, yeah, if, you're paying, right. if you're spending a quarter of the price of, you know, I don't say, let's just say Nero, you spend $50 mark on a, on a wave pump that is a, you know, 25% of the cost of a Nero 5 mark, you should expect about 25% of the lifetime performance of a Nero 5 mark. <laughs> He's giving me crap because I, I know he hates no, G-Bow no, no, no. and you I, know, I sent him a you picture of a G-Bow pump I got um, for a you know little 20-gallon, you know. And it takes a certain degree of experience to know what bargain basement products, um, the limitations thereof, and when they're starting to crap out. And I swear, one of the things that I just really, it's hard to forgive people for is bad magnets. Bad magnets, bad pumps, bad heaters. Because it's not like, oh, my pump broke, let me get a new one. It's like my heater cracked and leaked a bunch of freaking heavy metals into my tanks or the magnet or the return pump. And it's pretty much poisoned everything. And I have uh, fish only with live rock now. And it takes, it can take months for that long shadow of like heavy metal poisoning to fully take down your corals. Like some corals will grow through it. Strangely enough, macros will just 
you know, like accumulate some of the heavy metals in old skeleton and then the new skeleton is fine as far as far as as long as you can like correct those that early on. But ma'am, maintenance should be like 90% tune up and 10% problem solving. And I am using, you know, a wide variety of things. I'm always experimenting. That's my job is to review stuff and everything's kind of on a level playing field, but there's certain pieces of, of equipment that I'm spending 90% troubleshooting and 10% of just like general tune up. And it's not fair. And I've experienced that to like an extra level here with the studio. Um, lights are no problem. They're just, they're just not a problem. Pumps aren't a problem. Skimmers aren't a problem. I would say dosing pumps have been one of the trickiest things. They've been one of the trickiest things. I'm not sure if there's a, uh, a surefire, trouble-free, flawless dosing pump out there. You know, everybody's on Gen 1 or Gen 2 for the most part, unless they're well, you know, and super people cheap. People forget that dosing pumps, usually something that automates something has its own level of maintenance, right? And and the, the price yeah. of the maintenance, so the, the, the cost in terms of effort, not money, is less, right? But, I mean... You you know, I have anxiety about my dosing pumps, man. I got like a calendar reminder on my iPhone that once a year I change the peristaltic tubing, right? Which dosing pump are you using? Uh, I've got, uh, right now, I've got a Neptune dose. I've got two Neptune doses, and then I've got a Kamur um, forehead dosing pump. You know, Kamur is the only dosing pump company. They don't do anything else. And furthermore... Camor provided the motors in the Aquavitro Sentia dosing pump made by Cice. So an American company had an Italian company make a dosing pump with motors from a Chinese company. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if anybody has more street cred when it comes to dosing pumps than Camor. K-A-M-O-E-R. I'm sure a lot of people pronounce it very differently. Um, yeah. But uh, besides them, everybody else is on their first or, you know, V1.2, V1.5 iteration of dosing pumps. But even the Kimura, like the one I have is, what is it called? Like the X3 or something that has like a rainbow colored heads. Mm -hmm. um, it still has the inherent issue of having to replace those heads, having to replace the tubing. Do you have to replace that? This is a conversation Evan and I were having today because he was talking about rollers wearing out. Do you have to replace rollers wearing out? I did on my first-gen SpectraPure leader meter. They wore out because they were plastic. Oh, I mean, that thing was on like mad duty for five years. Okay, that that that's all right. You know, I just I just I'm still kind of wrapping my head around the Aquavitro Sentia. And they have a replacement dosing heads for the tubing and the rollers for $40. And I'm like, well, you can replace the tubing for like virtually free if you get, you know, just a little bit of the silicone tubing. But then Evan was like, oh, I was using something, something. And the rollers were actually wearing out. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts and dosing pumps, you know, from the motor to the bearings to the rollers to the tubing. And then the software, you hope that all that stuff works. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much calibration is important, right? Cause even if your stuff is miscalibrated and you have one tank, 
whatever, just increase your dose. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. not, again, like you said, we're not doing science. I don't know. No, I mean, um, exact balanced dosing, right? Uh, so if you're doing a sure. two part, you want to dose equal amounts to have the balance of, of sodium and chloride and then water exchange, right? Which is what I use one of my doses for. I want to make sure I'm removing and adding the same amount mm-hmm. or else I could have, you know, salinity issue right over time. Um, that's that's what I mean. I'll, not not necessarily like where the where the levels are at in terms of alk and calcium. Um, yeah, but um, I, I feel like you know some of this premium equipment that's sold for reef aquarium gear should be more battle tested. Putting yeah. in, a, in a tank of of even just clean salt water that's not alive with encrusting and biofouling stuff that is not tested. So sending it out to five or 10 or 20 of your biggest fans or something for a few months, that is not really field tested. You know, we are field testing some of this equipment. Again, I'm not really talking about return pumps. I'm not talking about lights, um, heaters. That's just a grab bag. I don't don't even want to go there. But, uh, you know, some of the more complicated, sophisticated stuff like dosing pumps are just hella unreliable. And so then when you put together a automatic water testing machine of any brand that has like five or six or more different dosing peristaltic dosing pumps built in plus more moving parts and you don't provide uh, a pre-filter for the pump that pulls water from the tank oh my god you are really asking for problems yeah it's well i mean so so it's easy to preach and it's very like duh preaching to say you maintain your gear check your magnets right have a use your phone task reminder calendar thing on your smartphone to remind you once a year to do this and every six months to do that for me it helps because it makes me feel like oh i should do that i should go clean my skimmer pump whatever but um and this goes back to a john oliver's thing he did on recycling where the blame and the responsibility of all the plastics in the world was passed on to the consumer. And, you know, oh, you should feel guilty because you need to recycle this. And then you find out that even though they all have recycling triangles, half the crap isn't actually recyclable. And so now I get a, in the mail, I get a special trash bag from Hefty that's orange. And it's like you as the consumer to save the earth, you should put the hard to recycle plastics in an orange bag and help the earth And it's like, uh, so this John Oliver thing was about why did they make the consumer the the blame, the guilt, right? Like, where is the manufacturer or the person that's producing these plastics? Where is their ownership in the problem equation, right? And I thought that was a really good thing of like, we, you know, it's like, you should check your heat. Like, I, I heard, you know, somebody say you should replace your heater once a year because, you know, heaters like will fail and it's like well why don't we just build a better heater i don't don't either and i I when you have a heater that really works that heater could last a really freaking long time yeah and And there are good that's not the answer right but like the answer is not to have the consumer fix the problem right yes that's that's my beef a bit and when you when you talk about high-end gear being better it's like okay then give me a better warranty right like that's another thing i have beef with um, with like the the whole industry thing of like uh, this eight hundred dollar light is better, and it's like, well, 
then eat your own dog food and show me that it is right. Like stand behind it. But anyway, that's a tangent. Um, no, 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 that, I, no, that's not a tangent. That is an important one. If you want to say, I'll give you a one year warranty on everything, but the power supply, because no one makes their own power supplies. I'm cool with that. I'm totally cool with that. But when you pay top dollar, almost a thousand dollars for a single light fixture, and you're going to cover it for one year, you know, like just, just give me some stipulations, you know, CJ, has demonstrated that they can give you a three-year warranty right off the bat. And they'll give you another two more if you register your product. Right. That's a five, that's a <laughs> you know, five-fold difference between two, you know, one premium product manufacturer and like everybody else. No, you're you're totally right. Like a one-year warranty, like I don't care what Apple's doing. You know, I'm sure they're a huge company, but they're, you know, bottom line really matters. But give me one year, give me a two, just double it. Just double it. Give me a two-year warranty on everything but the power supply. Because I understand you don't make that. Fine. I, I do totally get that. And it's hard to parse that out in the fine print. But CJ's did it. CJ's doing it. Three years, well, and, and three plus two-year warranty. Come on, man. That's amazing. Not to circle back to this whole internet discussion of is the hobby expensive, but one thing that I should that should come in with a premium flagship price is the word you use, battle tested, right? I don't care if it's the best light. I really don't. I don't care if it's got a slightly wider blue band than this other light. They'll all grow coral fine. I'm not trying to build a Ferrari. For me, it's about the fact that we are caring for living organisms and I want battle tested gear, right? Like I want Ooh, here's another one. If you have a, a specific wear point on the device that you know that is where your product is going to break, just pulling out of my hat, whatever, like an impeller or a bearing that is easily user serviceable, give me another one. Don't make me call <laughs> you for this two cent part that's going to cost more to ship to me than it would to just buy it. Or just yeah. include it in the box. If you know you have like a specific wear point, there's a lot of room there, you know, for dosing pump manufacturers to throw in some extra tubing or some extra rollers, right? You're paying a premium price. You don't want to give me one-year warranty? Boom, sure. Give me some of the you know, the serviceable parts that we're going to need anyway. You know, I, I again, I have certain products that I've been just refused to get away from because they last and last and last and last. And strangely enough... LEDs are amazing, man. I, I can't, I can't complain about any LEDs that I currently use. Amazing. A lot of pumps, just totally fine. But heaters, dude, I got a shelf of heaters. And anytime I need to like heat up a tank, I'm not sure which one to grab. I'm not sure which one to grab next. I'm just like, Ooh, I don't know. You got that titanium probe, but I don't know about that controller. And you have your 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 temperature sensing is built into the heating element. I'm not sure if that's really great. And this one's not grounded. You know, heaters is one of those things. I'm just like, well, we'll plug it in for a day or two and see if it'll either burn up or shock me. Well, and uh, that's how my 225 crashed. Right? Was that the the literal electrical cord going into the heater disconnected from the heater? And then whenever the thermostat on my controller said, oh, the temperature is too low, it would, you know, turn on that outlet. And there would, was a bare copper wire just <laughs> zapping my sump. <laughs> and thank God I didn't have, because I was, I had my hands in the sump to try to figure out what was going on, right? Thankfully, mm -hmm. the temperature was at an adequate point that the controller didn't activate the heater. Um, but uh, yeah, man, I've, I think we've all had 
we all have our heater stories, right? Um, mm-hmm. Every hobbyist, it seems like a, a rite of passage. I, again, I, I don't want to attack companies and equipment, but I, again, in the scope of what makes this hobby hard, it's on one end, you have really cheap gear. On the other end, you have very expensive gear. Uh, then you have the complexity. Uh, in the middle of the road, here. we have no premium heaters. There is yeah. no such thing as a premium heater. I almost feel like BRS kind of tried to do that with the Inkberg controller paired up with Shago heating elements. It's just like a, it was a weird. Yeah, but I just saw somebody post about a meltdown on their Inkbird because they plugged in like a 500 watt titanium well built heater, which technically, I, I don't know. It's. Heaters are not sexy, you know. You stick them in like a dark corner of your overflow box or your sump, and you don't think about it. But heat, the temperature—that's that's literally how you bake your cake. That dictates every biological, chemical, and like practically physical function that happens in your aquarium. Like, I think I've seen one example. I think it was um, RK2 had a inline heater that was like you know, titanium. I, I want to say it was like two to $300. I never got a review unit. And yes, it's going to be a pain in the butt to, to plumb it up in line. You know, it's not as convenient as dropping in a heating element, but um, man, there's a very, very uh, limited uh, operational life for any of these little drop-in heaters that we use. Um, and you know, I, I don't want to rail on, on warranties and heaters, but I think again, one of the things that makes things harder is products that just are not really field tested and don't live up to the promise beyond a few months. Yeah, you know, until they get biofouled and 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 used in the way that they should be. Yeah, and that um, I don't know if you want to start to close it down, but like at the I end of the closer. day, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, man. Go ahead. I think we might be on the same page because we have both haven't mentioned it yet. Oh, well, so for me, it's more general because some a lot of this rolls up to just um, you know who, what makes the hobby hard. It's us, right? Human nature. Um, know thyself, right? I know that I am. Um, I have ups and downs in my life with work and everything else that there are moments where my tank does not get the same level of attention, right? So I always joke about the term careful neglect, right? But I try to make my tank immune to neglect. And part of that is not add too much complexity. And my tank is fairly complex, I do confess. But overall, I, I try to, you know, battle tested equipment, I try to use scheduling on my phone to make sure that my ass doesn't forget to do important little things that could burn me. Um, But I also try to design everything to like the laziest version of myself, right? And that's where simplicity also comes in because the less crap you got running on the tank, the less there is to maintain, the less there is to fail, the less bio load that you have, the less that you're battling that import-export seesaw, um, and, and we talked about like, my wife always gives me crap when I add a new fish or coral because she's like, things are going so well. Why are you going to rock the boat? And it's another human nature thing, right? Like when things are going well, let me go add a new fish. Let me add a new coral. And then something goes out of whack. Right. Um, so uh, to me, a lot of it rolls up into just human nature, you know, um, that, that we have to just beware of like kind of your own limitations or your own. That's an excellent closing thought and completely different for for my parting thought. 
I feel, and I think you'll agree with this, there's a lot of reefers who I believe spend way more time talking about reef tanks on a monitor and a forum and shopping for corals on their computer or on their phone than actually looking at their reef tank. I don't know what that ratio is, right? Because we're always learning and I want to discover new stuff and I'd like to communicate with other folks and I want to do that in person. I really do. That's why if you have a reef aquarium event this year or ever, please do not black out the lights in the, you know, coral vending session. Let me see the people on the other side of the booth, any other people shopping so I can recognize my friend standing three feet away from me. But that's not what I mean. But if you are spending a ridiculous amount of time on your computer or your phone on forums, you know, having arguments or, or, or debating this or that on your computer instead of actually observing your corals and intimately getting to know the nuances and the um, idiosyncrasies of your particular aquarium Maybe you're in a different hobby and maybe you would be better off with a virtual aquarium on your computer. There are apps for that, right? So if you're not spending, again, I don't know what the ratio is, but maybe you should spend more time actually looking at your tank, verifying that your equipment's running as it should, keeping it clean, making sure your corals and your fish are super happy, healthy. I feel like, I feel like we all need to move that slider towards the IRL experience with your own actual aquarium. Or if you want that community aspect, something I've really been striving to do this year is go visit completely new people. Shout out to Sparky Mike that I met at About Fish at a freshwater store. I went to his house like 20, 30 minutes later. He's got a YouTube channel called Old School Reefer. It's a... it's creative. It's original, you know, but what I'm saying is just, if you want a little bit more of that debate aspect, if you want to share notes or compare observations, do it at the fish store, do it at your local fish store, just reach out to somebody and go see their tanks. Don't have them send you a picture. That's like crazy saturated with blue lights and orange filter. Go see it for yourself. Go compare notes. You know, that used to be one of the most magical things about reef tanks is uh, like a, a reef tank crawl. Mm. Right. A bunch of people would get together and one day we'd just go hop around like four or five, six tanks. And a lot of these people had already shared corals. So you could see the same coral growing in five different environments, uh, four different environments, different conditions, different lighting, different flow. And that was, that is just so, um, eye opening. Right. So I'm just asking everybody to make reef tank keeping more enjoyable and more easy by moving that slider away from the virtual online world and more towards look at your own reef tank, know what your corals and your fish are doing and go see what some other people's tanks are doing in real life. Yeah. I think if you're struggling, right, engaging in your local community with reef keepers who have corals and they can come over to your house and directly look at your tank that's having problems. Um, I think your growth and success rate when reef keeping is exponentially better with that in-person collaboration and sharing notes and learning than it is on a forum. Um, And in regards to acquisition, I apologize for bringing up another guitar analogy, but this person said it perfectly, which um, there's a guy who has a YouTube channel about 
how to make more music with less gear. And he's talking about gear acquisition syndrome. And mm. he mm. says that there's a psychological thing with humans where when you acquire things, your brain treats that as progress, right? So a guy who's buying and buying and buying guitars feels like he's progressing in the hobby, but he's not actually learning more, right? He's not learning to be a better musician. And in the hobby, I kind of feel like that's the same way. It's like your ability to buy a coral every week online and you get that frag and you put it in your tank. And now you've got this, you know, like I know we harped on it a lot, but like these tanks with like a bazillion frags, it feels like progress, right? Versus growing a reef, which takes a lot more time, right? It, so, Patience. Yeah. And so I can see that... Um, correlation and reef keeping right like that it's just natural human nature to feel like that's progress um and then um getting to know your reef better and spending more time with it like i talked about being an eyesight reefer or like a visual reef keeper um there was again not to throw in another analogy but like there was this thing about why in historical text the color blue doesn't exist and I was like, all right, that's an interesting topic. I'm going to go like watch that video, right? And it was fascinating because it talked about just how things are referenced, right? And so blue was really just um, a shade of black to a lot of cultures, and except for the Egyptians who knew how to make blue uh, paints and stuff, for, for right? So now they had to give it a name. And sort of like pink is a shade of red, right? So in some cultures, they just call it red, but we now call it pink. And now, and so here's where it gets interesting. The brain now has a feedback mechanism of like, oh, that's different. That has a different name. Okay, so now the differences between those shades of red is, is um, elevated in your brain. It's like a foreign language just all sounds the same. And then you learn the language and then all of a sudden the words sound different. And I feel like reef keeping when you start to go through ups and downs and you really spend time with your corals and get to know them, that feedback mechanism in your brain exists where you start to recognize the subtle differences because your brain is like, oh, that's different. I'm going to give that a different uh, rating or something in my brain. So now all of a sudden I can be like, hey, my mont montipora looks kind of off. Something's up, right? And I feel like the only way you get to that visual level of reef keeping and not chasing numbers and test kits is just spending time with your reef, right? So to your point, yeah, get off the internet and go play with your corals. Damn, Mark. You Sorry, have I went a little me, deep there at the no, end. No, <laughs> you have me a little bit speechless with how spot on those analogies are. Buying more stuff, buying more fish, buying more corals that it's not necessarily progress and i think that's that's you know pushing buttons in our lizard brain or something and i think you, you you totally nailed it on the head especially with the color analogy until you've seen the 50 shades of coral health you're not gonna be able to distinguish between a coral that's doing okay one that's doing awesome and that one that is struggling Yep, it's I, like the yeah. language, like, oh, those words are different, right? Now you mm -hmm. can hear the difference in, in versus the guy on the plane speaking some language you've never heard of, and the language is the same. The words sound the same, right? That's yeah. don't, don't, say anything, don't say anything more. You nailed it the first time. You <laughs> yep. nailed it the first time. All right. I want the listeners right now to rewind about five, six minutes and just hear what Mark just said 
Um, again, we all need to hear that one again. I was really, you really nailed it on the head. And, um, I think with that, we have, uh, thoroughly covered another aspect of this beautiful, awesome, enriching reef aquarium hobby that we all enjoy. I would like to congratulate us on our 25th episode. Nice. Um, we've been all, almost every week and, uh, I'm, I'm, into, I'm really enjoying it. You know, it's really cool to share the kinds of discussions that you and I have had for almost since like 2000, you know, lots and lots of discussion and just kind of, I want to thank everyone for bringing, for uh, allowing us to, to be part of their reef aquarium experience. I know a lot of folks are um, enjoying uh, reef therapy on the YouTube channel and on their favorite podcatchers. And if you are enjoying the content, you know, it's free. It's hella free. It's all kinds of free. Um, the only thing you can do to help us out is, uh, you know, share it with another reefer who is podcastically inclined, <laughs> you know, share some links around on certain topics that you particularly enjoy. And uh, I'm told that if you rate us on your favorite podcatcher, um, it helps our rankings and metrics and helps other folks discover uh, the good news of reef therapy. So, man, Mark, I'm, I'm actually really impressed with how you uh, put a bow on everything we've been talking about. We could have just narrow this episode down to just those last couple 20 minutes and just boom mic drop but um good stuff i'm glad uh you know you're doing this with me and i'm glad we're uh, 25 sessions in and uh we still have a lot more material to go so um thanks again everybody for tuning in and uh, we'll catch you guys on the next session of reef therapy yes bye everybody see you guys next week hopefully